Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome, friend. Follow me. We're going somewhere dark, somewhere dangerous. Most people would never dare enter the place we are going. There's no telling what horrors we'll find, what terrors we'll uncover. Don't say I didn't warn you. We might discover terrible monsters lurking there. Be careful, they could follow you out. Or maybe they're already inside you. Are you afraid? Good. Now you are ready to enter the Warning Woods. It started on a Friday night when my fiancé had gone out with some friends and I was home with Ezra, our four-year-old. He and I were having a great time. A movie, popcorn, caffeine-free soda. Things which, according to Ezra, his real dad never would have let him have. Yes, he still refers to his biological father as his real dad. And until my fiancé Andrea and I get married, I don't feel like I have much of a basis to correct him. Andrea says it would be fine if I did, that Ezra doesn't actually remember his dad, but I'm not so sure. So, I continue to be Joe. Joe who loves to play games and watch movies and eat junk food, while that waste of life gets to be real dad. We were watching Monsters, Inc., the one where the monsters enter children's bedrooms at night and scare them to harvest their screams. The magic of Disney is not talking mice and fairy godmothers, it's being able to turn a plot like that into a children's movie. I was thirsty for something other than soda, so I stood to go get some water. At that moment, behind the couch, the front door burst open. Wooden slivers of all sizes flew everywhere. The doorknob hit the rubber stop on the wall hard enough to form a crater in the drywall. The deadbolt was still sticking out of the door's side. I threw myself on top of Ezra. His rapid hyperventilation was the only sound I could hear besides my own heart. The movie continued to play, but my ears tuned it out. I didn't know what was coming next. I didn't know what had broken in the door. I didn't even know what could do that. A SWAT team, maybe? When nothing else happened, I told Ezra to go into his room and close the door. I remember standing there next to the couch staring at the open door, the splintered frame, the useless deadbolt sticking out like a mocking tongue. I remember waiting. Waiting and watching. But nothing came through the door. After I called her, Andrea came home in a hurry and took Ezra to a friend's house. I stayed behind just long enough to put some longer screws in a detached hinge leaf so the door would stay upright. I was able to close it, and it stayed shut, but with the frame destroyed, there was no way to lock it. For now, it would just give the illusion of security. I knew my family couldn't stay in the house that night, so I got us a motel nearby. Ezra slept hard right away, and Andrea eventually fell asleep too. But she didn't hear that door explode. She didn't have to wait in the eerie stillness that followed to see who or what might come charging through the hole it left in our home. A monster come to harvest our screams, maybe. Having experienced it all, I could only pray for sleep that would never come. Andrea took Ezra to the mall the next morning while I went to Home Depot, then back to the house. I expected to find it ransacked, I couldn't believe I hadn't thought to take our cash or Andrea's jewelry with me when I had left the night before. 
Only one thing seemed off when I arrived, though. Ezra's bedroom door was closed. I didn't remember closing it the night before, but I decided I must have since it didn't look like anyone else had come in. When I felt like it was safe inside the house, I got to work. Not only did I replace the door and the deadbolt, I added a knob lock and chain. I also installed one of those security doorbells with a camera and microphone in case who or whatever broke into the house came back. This time, I would have it all on video. Andrea and Ezra came home that evening. Andrea saw the three locks and said I was overreacting. Somehow, despite the damage, she thought I was exaggerating what had happened that night. Well, she doesn't anymore because that exploding door was just the prelude. The nightmare had only just begun. For good measure, and just in case I wasn't exaggerating, Andrea made Ezra sleep between us that night. I moved his nightlight into our room before getting under the covers myself. It took a while for me to fall asleep. I noticed every minuscule groan and creak the house made. I had to analyze each one in my mind to determine if it was a footstep in another room. But at some point, I gave in and fell asleep. I'm not sure how long I was asleep before Andrea shook me awake. I had been in a deep slumber, probably recovering from the previous sleepless night. Andrea shook me again, and this time I looked at her, really looked at her, and saw fear stretched across her face. Her quivering jaw, her tear-brimmed eyes, snapped me awake in an instant. My first thought was for Ezra. I slid my hand across the mattress until it bumped into his leg. The child stirred but remained fast asleep. I tried to ask what was wrong, but Andrea clamped one hand over my mouth and raised a finger to her lips. Her eyes were focused on something behind me, across the room. I rolled over and saw. The bedroom door was halfway open and still swinging inward. My chest ached as my heart rate instantly doubled. I sat straight up and shook the covers off my legs. I gestured for Andrea to back up as far as she could, but she covered Ezra instead. Mustering courage I didn't have, I stepped toward the door and grabbed it gently. It stopped in my hand. I breathed a sigh of relief and bowed my head. I figured I hadn't closed it all the way when I came back to bed, and the latch had slipped and pushed it back open. It made sense. The sound of the latch would have woken Andrea, and it could have generated enough momentum to move the door. I started to close it, but something tore it from my hand. Along with the impact of the door slamming into the wall came an impact to my chest that knocked me to the floor. I landed flat on my back and had the wind knocked out of me. I rolled over, gasping for air that wouldn't come. I wanted to stand up. I could hear Andrea screaming. Ezra woke up and I could hear his terrified little voice asking, What, Mommy? What is it? Andrea shouted, It's in the bed, Joe. Air still wouldn't come into my lungs. I tried to push myself up, but my muscles felt flat and useless. Joe! Andrea cried. Then both Andrea and Ezra's voices broke into harmonized shrieks of terror. Had I had any air in my lungs, it would have been sucked out by what I saw next. Ezra was lifted into the air, three feet above the bed. Andrea was grabbing at him, but he stayed just out of reach. I couldn't understand why she wasn't moving closer, but then I realized something was pushing her down. The first real breath I was able to draw filled my lungs halfway. It was enough. I scrambled to my feet and wrapped my arms around Ezra, but something strong held him fast. The boy squirmed and cried, yet the invisible force maintained its powerful grip on him. I drew another, fuller breath, and my strength returned. 
I put it all into yanking Ezra toward myself. Something blunt struck me just below my right eye. I didn't let go, but almost lost my grip when I was hit again, then a third time. My eyes started swelling shut, but I still held on. The invisible force's attention had all shifted to me, which freed Andrea to crawl across the bed and wrap her own arms around the floating child. Together, we wrenched him free. Andrea fell back onto the mattress with Ezra in her arms. I fell back against the sliding closet door. It came off its track and fell on top of me. The bedroom door slammed, and every other door in the house slammed after it. The resulting boom shook the house hard enough to knock over an empty glass that had been on the edge of my end table. It hit the carpet with a thud, and everything went quiet. Andrea smothered Ezra with kisses in between rapid questions. Are you okay? Are you hurt? What did it do to you? I shimmied out from under the closet door and stepped out of the room. I peered down the hallway with an overwhelming sense of dread. With every door closed, the intruder could have been lurking in any room. And I knew it was inside one of them, because the doorbell camera hadn't been triggered. The front door hadn't opened or closed. Whatever had tried to take Ezra was still in the house. With even deeper dread, I realized it had probably been inside since the night before, watching me fix the door, watching my family come home and go to sleep. Joe? Andrea called for me. I returned to the bed, flipping on the light as I went. You okay, buddy? I asked Ezra. His face was soaked with tears, but he nodded bravely. Is it gone? Andrea asked me. After making sure Ezra wasn't looking at me, I shook my head. Andrea's eyes darted to the door. I'll take you two back to the motel, I said. Shouldn't we call the police or something? Asked Andrea. I shook my head again. What would I tell them? What could they do? They can't arrest something they can't see. But Joe, your eye. I became immediately aware of the sore throbbing around my eye socket. I went to our bedroom mirror to assess the damage. My eye was swollen halfway shut. The skin beneath it had ballooned and turned purple. Blood trickled in a slow line from a small tear. We couldn't see whatever had come into our house, but it could touch us. It could hurt us. I'm taking you two to the motel, I repeated. I'll figure out what to do once we're there. Most of what we needed was still packed in bags from the previous night. I added a couple sets of fresh clothes to each bag while Andrea and Ezra waited out in the car. As we drove to the motel, I tried to remember a name I had once heard in connection with this sort of unusual activity. There was a professor at one of the nearby universities. I couldn't remember which one. This professor had become somewhat famous recently as a paranormal expert. She had become particularly well-known for dispelling notions of demonic possession in subjects suffering from psychological disorders. That's right, I remembered. She was a professor of psychology. A few of her cases hit the news after she claimed the supernatural elements were actually real. Most notably, she had been involved in the mysterious Cot House, which had since become a sort of paranormal tourist destination. It's said that ghosts from a dark portal still walk throughout that house. I looked up the Cot House after getting Andrea and Ezra situated and found the professor's name. Pons. Gabriella Pons. I wasn't too surprised to learn she had since lost her university position due to the wildly unscientific claims she had become publicly known for. However, she had stayed in the area and apparently been making a living hunting down ghosts and demons. 
or rather trying to sift through which cases were legitimate. She had a website with a phone number, so in the morning, I gave her a call. She sounded nice and reasonable. I explained everything that had happened, and she told me to meet her at the house at noon. I dropped Andrea and Ezra off at the mall that day, Sunday, and left to meet Professor Pons. Andrea was skeptical but happy I was doing something at least, since I wouldn't involve the police. As I drove back to our house, a new fear settled into my brain. What if the thing in our house decided to lay dormant while the professor visited? What if it could figure out what she was trying to do and make it seem like everything was normal? If the professor thought I was lying, who could I turn to next? I pulled into the driveway at 11.55, and Professor Pons arrived promptly at noon. Professor Pons? I asked, meeting her on the walkway to the front porch. Please call me Gabby. You must be Joseph. Just Joe, I said. We shook hands, and I led her up to the front door. Gabby didn't speak much as we toured the house together. I repeated my account of the events, showing her where everything took place. I wondered if she was buying anything I was saying. It's demoralizing to hear every word out of your own mouth sound so unbelievable. If there was a bright side, my effort to sound honest kept me from thinking too hard about what we might find behind each door as we opened them one by one. So, remind me, Gabby said when we had finished looking in every room. When you came home yesterday to install the new door, you mentioned one room was closed. Yeah, my fiancé's son's room was shut. And that's abnormal? she asked. Yeah, I mean, I don't remember it being closed when we left. It's this one here? Gabby asked, pointing to Ezra's room. That's the one, I said. She stepped inside and, after a moment's hesitation, I followed her. If there is a haunting here, I would guess this room is the epicenter. I'm only going off of limited information, of course. To fully investigate, I'll need to put cameras in each room. I said, okay... And you and your family will need to spend the whole night here, Gabby finished, turning to me with a stern expression. Absolutely not, I said. We can't, I can't put them in that kind of danger. Maybe you don't understand. This thing lifted Ezra off the bed. It took both of us just to get him back, and I got this in return. I realized I had started shouting as I pointed to my swollen, bruised eye. Gabby held her stern expression for a second, then broke into a toothy grin. Thank you, she said. Now I know I can trust you. What? I asked, growing irritated. Most of the time when I suggest the residents stay in their haunted abodes for observation, they are all too eager. This is especially true when I offer to put up the cameras. Anyone who is actually experiencing something truly frightful, especially something dangerous, should react in the manner you just did. So you believe me, I said. Shouldn't I? She asked back. I mean, I don't know if I would believe myself, I said. I believe you, Gabby confirmed, but I will say your story has some irregularities that have piqued my interest. Don't misunderstand, I'm not saying your story is inconsistent, I just mean there are elements of it I don't know if I can explain yet. I asked, like what? For starters, most of the haunted homes I've investigated began as haunted. The epicenter is constant and usually the location of some marked tragedy from the past. But what you've described to me is a brand new haunting beginning of its own accord and seemingly setting up a home base in this room. Do you sense anything in here? I asked. Oh, please, I'm not a psychic, Gabby answered, sounding offended. Feeling awkward now, I asked, 
So what's next? That depends, Gabby said. How would your fiancé feel about you and I spending the night together? Gabby laid out her plan, and I called Andrea to explain what we were going to do. I picked her and Ezra up and took them back to the motel to spend the rest of the evening and night. While I was gone, Gabby stayed at the house to set up cameras, electromagnetic frequency readers, and audio recorders in every room. Will you be safe? Andrea had asked. I said, I think so. This Gabby lady seems to know what she's doing, and she doesn't seem scared at all. I think as long as she's there, I'll be okay. I hope you're right, Andrea said, gently touching my black eye. It freaks me out how strong that thing was. If it gets to be too much, we'll just burn the house down and claim the insurance, I said. Andrea snorted a short laugh, and her eyes flickered with a light I hadn't seen for two days, but only momentarily. We hugged, kissed, and I was on my way back to the house. Everything's ready, Gabby told me when I walked in. The house had wires crossing over wires, running along the floor, taped to the walls, and just about everywhere else you could look. You don't think adding all of these electronics will change anything? I asked. She said, These spirits are operating on an entirely different plane. It's my understanding, and this has been confirmed time and again by observation, that ghosts experience an impression of the spaces they occupy rather than what is physically there. If the ghost is of someone who used to live in the home, they see and feel the house as it was when they were alive. You may find this humorous. I think often when people hear things go bump in the night, it's the spirits knocking into things that weren't there in their own time. Gabby laughed a light and airy laugh, and I wondered how she could know half of this stuff. When it started getting dark, Gabby's mood seemed to shift. She became more serious. She didn't seem afraid, but I wondered if she might be feeling a little uneasy. I certainly was. The spirit had escalated in violence over the previous two nights, and if it continued that trend, I started to worry Gabby and I could be in real danger. Close the door to the boys' room, Gabby instructed. The camera will allow us to see in there without disturbing the epicenter. She held an iPad showing the feeds from each room in night vision green. I did as she asked and we sat beside each other on the living room couch. We watched her screen in silence, and I, I'm ashamed to admit, dozed off. I couldn't help it after two sleepless nights in a row. For the second time in as many nights, I was woken by my shoulder being shaken and hearing my name whispered at me. What's going on? I asked. Look. Gabby pointed at a box in the lower left corner of the screen. It was labeled, Child Bedroom, and in parentheses, Epicenter. The covers of Ezra's bed were slowly folding down on their own. A light was blinking on top of Ezra's dresser. The EMF reader was going haywire. You won't want to hear this, but I think it's after your son, Gabby whispered. It's looking for him. Ezra's covers were suddenly yanked all the way off and thrown across the room. Less than a second later, his sliding closet doors broke from their tracks and fell to the floor. Gabby whispered, Brace yourself. Ezra's bedroom door opened slowly. I stared at it. The blinking lights from the EMF reader were reflecting off the door's polished wood. They started blinking more slowly, then went dark. On Gabby's screen, I saw the same light start flashing in Andrea and I's bedroom. Should we really just sit here? I whispered. Gabby leaned in close and replied, It doesn't want us. We'll be fine. I didn't believe her, but I had no choice but to trust her. I watched Andrea and I's bed get peeled like an orange. The covers moved slowly at first, 
Then, when it was evident the bed was empty, the covers flew into the air. The sheet went one direction and the comforter flew towards the camera, knocking it off the dresser Gabby had it positioned on. A foundation-shaking boom made me look up from the iPad in time to see all the doors slam shut again. This time, they didn't stay that way. The boom had faded into a low, constant rumble. I could barely hear it, but I felt it in my feet, vibrating my legs, making the couch feel like it might collapse and send us tumbling into some dark void. The hinges squealed as the bedroom door opened just a crack. Then, as if shaking the house and opening the door was too much effort, the rumbling stopped and the bedroom door opened all the way. Gabby's hand slid onto my wrist and she squeezed me lightly. Her touch said, Don't react too quickly, but get ready. Her hand was shaking. Ezra's door exploded inward, breaking from its hinges. Gabby's hand tightened. When I realized she was squeezing me because she was scared, I became terrified. The door to my little office was smashed inward like Ezra's. The deep rumble started up again. Joe? Gabby whispered a few seconds later. I turned toward her. Her head was tilted back toward the couch at a strange angle. I wondered why, until one lens of her glasses fogged up on the outside. Without thinking, I yanked her arm and pulled her toward me. We fell off the couch together in a heap, but I quickly scrambled to my feet and helped Gabby to hers. The invisible spirit stood between us and the front door. At least, I assumed that's where it had stayed after breathing on Gabby's face. Come on, I said, pulling her back up onto the couch. I climbed over the back. Something pushed me off hard, and I heard a pop in my shoulder as I hit the floor. Gabby came after me, iPad still in hand, and I jumped up to keep her from being shoved like me. Together, we made it through the front door and into the night. We ran to the street, where I stopped and turned back to Gabby. Do you have your keys? I asked. I had left mine inside the house and didn't plan on going back for them. To my relief, she held up her own. I'll take you to the motel. I'll get a room too so we can come back first thing tomorrow, she said. You're gonna... But I couldn't quite find the next words. Seeming to read my mind, Gabby said, You thought I was done? Are you kidding? I'm scared out of my mind, but I haven't come across anything this exciting since the cot house. We climbed into her old pickup truck and started toward the motel. So, in your professional opinion, what the hell was that? Gabby took a minute to think before responding. I want to say something demonic, but that doesn't feel right. Not the way it just showed up and started smashing things. Demonic oppression usually begins slowly in order to stay under the radar. Like boiling a frog, I said. Precisely. By the time the frog, to use your analogy, realizes what's going on, the demon already has hold of it. This spirit is blunt and forceful, and it has a clear desire. Your son. Or, I'm sorry, your fiancé's son. I think I've been referring to him as your own. I'm sorry if that causes you any discomfort. No, I said. It's all right. I think of him as my own already. His dad, from what I've heard, was a piece of trash who never tried to be that involved. Andrea left him before Ezra turned too. He pretends to remember him, but I don't think he really does. Sounds complicated, Gabby said. I could say the same about what you do for a living, I replied. We laughed. It felt improper to laugh after what we had just experienced and what we had to look forward to the next day, but it still felt good. When I woke up the following morning beside Ezra, who was still dead asleep, 
I saw Andrea had already gotten up. She was stirring a nasty yet necessary cup of instant coffee and looking at her phone. My head hurt, and my shoulder felt sore. I rolled over and closed my eyes to try and sleep a little longer, but then I heard Andrea's voice. There's no way, she said aloud to herself. A second later, she exclaimed, Oh my god, it is. Joe. I was up, heart racing, in a flash. There was pain in Andrea's voice that lent it a tone of urgency. What? What is it? I asked as I tried to untangle myself from the sheets. Listen to this, Andrea said, flashing her phone toward me, then turning it back to read from the screen. A local man's graphic death has been ruled a suicide after police found no evidence of foul play. As previously reported, the yet unidentified man's body was found in Hyde Park just after dawn on Saturday by a jogger. He had been laid out in a pentagram which seemed to have been painted in the sand with his own blood. Other items were reportedly found at the scene, but police have withheld the details pending further investigation. One item we know was a stone knife, which police have now confirmed the man used to slit his own wrists. He then proceeded to paint the pentagram in blood and carry out what police assume was an occult ritual before passing away from his self-inflicted injuries. My heart rate settled. Andrea had a tendency to gasp and shout at inappropriate times when something shocked her. This drove me nuts any time we were in a car. Creepy stuff, I said, intentionally sounding unamused. No, Joe, there's more. They have a link to his picture because apparently the cops can't ID this guy, and they're hoping the public can help. Take a look. She held her phone out. I sat on the edge of the bed to look. The photo was of a clearly dead man with sunken, pasty skin. He had wild, curly hair and an unkempt beard, which flowed out of the image. His eyes were closed and a little too deep in his skull. I couldn't place him, but he did look vaguely familiar. You know him? I asked Andrea. She nodded, and I was surprised to see tears in her eyes as I handed back her phone. She spared a nervous glance at Ezra, then leaned in close to me and whispered, He's Ezra's dad. The news hit me like a straight right in the forehead, but my next thought was a solid left hook to the jaw. I stood up, squeezed Andrea's shoulder, and said, Sit tight. I need to go tell Gabby. I think... But I didn't have the words to articulate what I was thinking yet. My mind was still putting it all together. I knocked on Gabby's door and she answered, already dressed. I gave her a brief summary of what I had just learned, and her face fell. When did it happen? She asked. Sometime Friday night. She nodded, as if expecting this answer. She said, I was about to come get you, actually. I think I may have learned something that could give us an edge over, well, over Ezra's father, if that's really who's haunting your home. I'll explain on the way. Andrea was a sobbing heap when I returned to the room. It broke my heart to leave her like that, but Gabby and I needed to act quickly. She had told me the simple fact that Ezra's dad had found us once meant he could probably find us again. In her truck, Gabby explained what she had learned. I examined the recorded footage from last night, she said. I paid particular attention to the timing of things. Did you notice the breaks between actions? Sort of, I replied. They were more consistent than I was able to realize in the moment, she continued. For example, he smashed your son's closet door with force, then opened his bedroom door slowly. He moved slowly until he slammed all the doors. Then there was another break. He shoved you off the couch, but he didn't touch me. Do you know what I think? 
I said, tell me. I think he gets tired. I think it takes a significant amount of energy for him to interact with the physical world, and he has to recharge. Could it really be that simple? I asked. It could be, definitely. Now we know he committed ritualistic suicide. Whatever he did ensured he would remain bound to this world after death, but he doesn't have the power of a demon or other supernatural creature. That could mean, despite his displays of strength, he's actually quite weak. We may be able to overcome him. The plan Gabby devised during the rest of the drive seemed so cartoonish, so asinine, but I reminded myself who the expert was and committed to helping her see it through. The plan started with me shutting off the master breaker, cutting power to the house. The next part was trickier. Gabby and I went into each room, shutting the doors and pushing the largest, heaviest pieces of furniture in front of them. We had to climb out through windows and close them behind us. In Ezra's room, we used his bed. In Andre and I's room, we used the dresser because we couldn't get the big bed to sit flush against the door. In my office, we slid my desk in front of the door. We had to leave the bathroom alone because there was no window to escape through. Ezra's dad hadn't shown much interest in that room anyway. The next step was to remove every battery we could find in the house. I emptied the smoke detectors, flashlights, toys, TV remotes, everything. Gabby collected them all in a box and took them out to her truck. The final step of the plan was so far-fetched, so ridiculous, that I could tell Gabby was rethinking it even as we prepared the necessary tool. Ezra had this teddy bear, a big white one, that sang and danced when you pressed a button on its hand. It was powered by three AA batteries. When Gabby had asked me if I had any dying batteries on hand, the teddy bear had immediately come to mind because Ezra liked to scare Andre and I with it. The batteries were so drained that whenever he pressed the hand, the bear only jerked from side to side and made these horrible screeching, growling noises. I handed the bear over to Gabby, and she removed the battery cover but left the batteries inside. Then, all we had left to do was wait. It started getting dark around 8 o'clock. Gabby and I, determined not to give the spirit any access to energy, had left our phones and Gabby's iPad in the truck. It was just the two of us, sitting in the dark, waiting to see what Ezra's father would do. I wondered if he would do anything at all. I wondered if he had figured out Ezra was gone and worried he might have even slipped out of the house and gone to find his child elsewhere. I was just about to call Andrea and make sure everything was okay at the motel when I heard something inside Ezra's room. The hiss of the carpet told us the spirit was dragging Ezra's bed away from the door. He was coming out. Ezra's door opened slowly. I imagined the face of his father scanning the dark house, maybe wondering where all the lights and electrical humming had gone. The door opened all the way, and Gabby clutched the teddy bear to her chest. Andrea and I's bedroom door cracked and rattled with a sudden impact. Our dresser kept it in place. The blows came two, three more times, yet the door stayed put. The bathroom door exploded inward with nothing to hold it in place. Next, my office door was cracked in two, horizontally. The top half fell on top of the desk, and everything went still again. Now that I knew who our haunting spirit was, I could picture him scanning my dark office, searching for any nook where his son might be hiding from him. He didn't look for long. Another heavy hit split Andrea and I's bedroom door down the middle, but it stayed fast. 
Another hit, much weaker, broke one of the split halves in two, yet it still stayed in the doorframe, blocking the room from view. The next blow barely made impact. It sounded soft and flat. It's time, Gabby whispered. She pressed the teddy bear's hand and it started jerking in her arms. Its screeching seemed deafeningly loud in the stillness of the dark house. It jerked and screeched and growled and jerked some more. Then, all of a sudden, its stiff movements smoothed out. Its piercing voice became melodious and sweet. The spirit had entered the bear's circuits. He wanted to feed off the battery's dwindling energy. Gabby had other ideas, though. She plucked the double A's from the open battery pack one by one. It worked. To my shock and horror, the bear continued dancing and singing after the batteries were gone, although its voice started to crack again. Gabby ran outside, teddy bear still in hand, and threw the batteries onto the roof. Let's go, she shouted, but I was already behind her. We ran across the yard to her truck. Won't he be able to steal the truck's energy? I asked. Gabby didn't answer. She didn't have to. I saw she had been busy while I'd been turning off the power. She had tied a rope around her truck's bumper. It must have been 30 feet long. When we reached the truck, she tied the end of the rope around the bear's torso while I climbed in. Gabby smiled at me as she got into the driver's seat. She said, I think we got him. He's too weak to escape. So far, she's been right. We drove that bear with Ezra's father's spirit trapped inside it nearly an hour out of town. We dragged it along an unmarked gravel road in the middle of nowhere and finally stopped. Gabby retrieved a shovel from the truck bed and I untied the battered bear. I pressed the hand and the motor inside the stuffed animal groaned weakly. There were still no batteries in it. Gabby and I buried that bear three feet down in an overgrown ditch. I don't think I could find it again if I wanted to. I hope that means he can't find us either. After a good number of repairs, Andrea, Ezra, and I have been able to sleep at home again. Ezra started calling me dad, too. And Gabby? She's off helping someone else, I'm sure. She's hard to keep track of, too busy to stay in touch. I feel a little better about going through everything that happened to us, knowing Gabby Pons might be using what she learned in our case to help someone else maybe even as I write these very words. You made it out. Congratulations. If you enjoyed the story, please rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. Reviews are the best way to support the podcast and help it grow. You can also become a patron at patreon.com slash thewarningwoods. If you want more creepy content, including the images that accompany each story, follow me on Instagram at thewarningwoods. If you feel ready, meet me here next week for another journey into the warning woods. Thank you for listening. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. 
on a remote island in Lake Superior. A team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.